Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. I hope you had a great week. As always, Let's Talk Micro is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Overcast, Pandora, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to your podcast, you can find Let's Talk Micro. As far as social media, I am on Instagram as Let's Talk Micro, no apostrophe, and on Twitter as Let's Talk Micro 1. So please go ahead and follow. I always like to post pictures of organisms, updates as to when the next episode is coming out. So you can always follow, leave any feedback, any suggestions about possible uh, podcast topics. So please feel free and go ahead and follow. If you haven't checked out last week's episode, please go ahead and do so. You know, it was a very great episode. It was an interview episode where Dr. Jeanette Teo from the National University Hospital in Singapore, she came to the podcast and she was talking about a new member of the Staphylococcus aureus complex, which is Staphylococcus singaporensis. You know, in January, I had an interview with Dr. Robin Patel and Dr. Audrey Schutz from the Mayo Clinic. And they were talking about a study with some isolates that they were originally identified as staph warriors. They ultimately ended up being identified as Staphylococcus argentius, the silver staph. So it is very similar to staph warriors, right? As far as catalase, coagulase positive, beta hemolysis. The only difference was that, you know, it even has some virulence factor, some evidence of a of it being a colonizer, but the only the difference was that it doesn't have the the yellow pigment, the staphylosanthin gene. It doesn't have it, so it's that's what they call it, like the silver staff. And on last week's episode, you know, Doctor Teal, she talks about a study they did. There were some isolates that they were originally identified as Staphylococcus argentius, but there were some differences. You know, it wasn't, they weren't quite similar. So via gene sequencing, you know, they find out that they are different. And the new species, it was named Staphylococcus singaporensis. So go ahead and check out that episode. You know, we talk about virulence factors, how similar this organism is to Staph aureus. It seems that this one does have the, the Staphylosanthin gene. So we, we go over all that. You know, one of the challenges now is that, you know, Argentus was identified via gene sequencing, Singaporeensis 2. As of right now, the broker Molitov can identify Staphylococcus Argentus, but not Singaporeensis yet. So that's one of the challenges where now all the Molitov platforms, they need to start updating, you know, their databases. So we can start identifying these organisms in the lab. This way, if we start identifying them, we can know more about them. We can have a better understanding as far as, you know, what's the pathogenesis, whether, you know, they're colonizers, what kind of susceptibility profiles we have. So these are things that we have to keep in mind. And of course, you know, we, start, we need to start by being able to identify the organisms. So it was a good interview. If you haven't checked it out, go ahead and do so. You know, the episode is episode 38, 
Staphylococcus singaporensis. So today's episode is another interview episode. This is on great information. So here I have been on this interview, I have three guests and they are coming to discuss a study which was published in the Journal of Clinical Microbiology of the American Society for Microbiology. And then the article is titled, Stop Waiting for Tomorrow. This diffusion performed on early growth is an accurate method for antimicrobial susceptibility. Testing will reduce turnaround time. So I get three guests, you know, which are Dr. Carrie Ann Burnham, Dr. Daniel Weber, and Megan Wallace from the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. As microbiologists, we know that microbiology, one of the differences from, you know, between microbiology and other areas of the lab, you know, like hematology, chemistry, it is time, right? If you're in hematology, you're in chemistry, let's say your sample is hemolyzed, you know, your, for your chemistry, your CVC is clotted, you go ahead and call for a new sample and then you run it through the instrument and then within one hour you can have your result. So we know that micro this is not the case. Yeah of course you know we have some rapid tests you know like your rapid straps you know you have some PCR testing but when it comes to bacterial cultures you know it's a it's a lengthy process you know it's time consuming we have to wait till the organism grows about 18 to 24 hours then after that, you know, if it's a pathogen, based on the source, we go ahead and, you know, perform ID and susceptibilities. If we don't have enough to perform those, we have to subculture the organism and then wait another day or so so we can perform susceptibilities. So microbiology is all about time. If you don't strip your plate, if you don't find that bacteria and you don't isolate it, or maybe it's a slow grower. So everything is a day. You isolate the organism, it's one day. Susceptibilities, another day. So this is all about time. What about if we didn't have to wait those 18 hours? What if we could incubate the organism for less time and then perform susceptibilities, right? We could provide results faster to the provider so the patient could be treated you know, accordingly. So this is what the study was about. They went ahead and uh, performed susceptibilities on organisms that they were, you know, incubated for six hours. So, you know, think about when in the lab you either, you know, you subculture an organism or let's say you plate some media with your swab from the sample that came in the lab. And then, right, you, you incubate that plate for 18 to 24 hours. And then from, from there, if you have enough, like I said, you perform your ideal susceptibilities. So in this case, you know, the plate was inoculated and then it was incubated for six hours. And then from those colonies, you know, some of these common organisms that you see in the lab, you know, they use control organisms and they use also their samples. You know, organisms like E. coli, you know, Staph aureus. After that six hours, you know, they grab some colonies, they perform their disdiffusion, and then they compare those results to this diffusion, you know, uh, testing that was incubated for the regular 24 hours. So the results were very, 
and were actually very satisfactory. They obtained some really good results. So this looks promising. And of course, you know, we there are some variables that this will, of course, you know, they, it will work better with your automated lines for just limited limited access to the incubators. So there are some things that need to be figured out, but this data looks really good. You know, it is exciting to think that maybe, you know, this working, we can actually reduce the time, you know, that, that it takes us in the lab to provide susceptibilities. You know, this is all about the patients. Anything that we can do to improve, it's always welcome. So without further ado, let's go ahead and listen to the interview. So today is an interview episode, and we have three guests. They are the authors of a study performed on disc diffusion, and this was published on the Journal of Clinical Microbiology of the American Society for Microbiology. And the, the title is Stop Waiting for Tomorrow. This diffusion performed on early growth is an accurate method for antimicrobial susceptibility testing with reduced turnaround time. So today with me, I have Dr. Carrie Ann Burnham, Dr. Daniel Weber, and Megan Wallace from the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Thank you so much for having us here today. Thank you. Uh, you're certainly welcome. Okay, so let's just start going around the, around the room. And uh, can each of you please tell me a bit about yourself and your current role? Sure, absolutely. Um, again, thank you for having us here today. We're really excited to talk to you about our study. My name is Carrie Ann Burnham, and I'm a professor of pathology and immunology at Washington University in St. Louis. I'm also the medical director of our microbiology laboratory at Barnes Jewish Hospital. And in addition to those roles, I lead a, a research group. I think I'm pretty lucky. I work with the best research team in the business, and I love all things bacteriology and antimicrobial resistance. I'm, Dan I'm Daniel Weber, and uh, I'm an instructor in the same department at Washington University in St. Louis. I'm currently studying microbiome. Um, I had the pleasure to work with uh, Dr. Burnham and Megan uh, during this study while I was a clinical pathologist or uh, resident in clinical pathology. Hi, my name is Megan Wallace. I'm a certified medical lab scientist. I um, got my start in a clinical micro lab at a children's hospital, but for the past nine years, I've worked in a clinical microbiology microbiology research lab of Carrie Ann. Very nice, a fellow medical lab scientist. Okay, um, so um, can you tell me a bit about your clinical lab? Absolutely, I will take this one. Um, so our clinical laboratory is a so-called hub microbiology laboratory for our healthcare system. So we serve the large academic medical center. It's about 1,250 beds a standalone children's hospital and several community hospitals. So overall, we serve over 3,000 inpatient beds. Um, I think we're pretty lucky because our laboratory is newly constructed. We moved into it in 2016, so it's new. It's not in the basement, it's on the fifth floor. We even have windows, so that's really a treat. Um, and we're pretty lucky to be outfitted with a lot of great technology. We have the Keystra Total Laboratory Automation System. Um, we were some of the first in the country to be using Malditoff for microbial identification. We've been using that for about a decade. 
Um, we use the virtual blood culture system. Um, but despite my love of new technology and rapid diagnostics, our major workhorse for susceptibility testing is Kirby Bauer disc diffusion, um, which is surprising to some people. Well, you know, definitely nice to be working in a in a new facility. That's definitely a very nice. Um, just out of curiosity, before I, I ask the next question, um, which the which is which are Molotov do you use over there? We have the Bruker Biotyper for our clinical operation, but in the research operation that Megan is part of, we have the Vitec MS. So we're really lucky that we get to work with both of them on a regular basis. Yes, definitely. I mean, I only work with the Vitec MS. I haven't worked with the broker. Um, so with this study, uh, what question were you asking and what prompted you to ask this question? Take this one. So we really wanted to know if we could speed things up uh, as Dr. Burnham mentioned, uh, the mainstay of antimicrobial susceptibility testing in the lab is Kirby-Bauer disdiffusion testing. And so we wanted to ask specifically whether susceptibility results are comparable if subcultures were incubated for a shorter period of time, such as like six or 10 hours, versus a standard 18 to 24 hours before disdiffusion testing. And I think... There's a lot of things that prompted us to ask this question. And I think a big driver is the fact that micro labs are no longer just so-called day shift operations like they used to be in the past. Um, so with micro becoming more consolidated and lab serving as hub labs with things like total lab automation where samples go in on a continuous flow and are ready to be read on a continuous flow, I think we really need to get away from our historical microbiology mindset that you do a bunch of stuff put it in the incubator, and then come back the next day and work on it. So this is where we really were trying to think about how could we push the limits of Kirby-Bauer disk diffusion to have a cost-effective but accurate way of delivering results faster. Okay, and then so while we're at this, um, can you tell the audience the importance of improving antimicrobial susceptibility testing results? Absolutely. You know, this is something that I'm really passionate about. Um, the antimicrobial resistance crisis is a huge public health crisis, and a lot of it is fueled by diagnostic uncertainty. So because we have so much antimicrobial evidence, when people present to the hospital and they look sick and suggestive of infection, we're really forced to treat them with broad spectrum antimicrobials up front because of the risk that it could be a resistant pathogen. And so during this long window of diagnostic uncertainty, sometimes two or three days, the patients remain on these broad spectrum antimicrobials, which only goes on to further cause more selective pressure and further fuel the antibiotic resistance crisis. And so the more quickly that we can deliver optimal antimicrobial susceptibility testing, we can have patients put on optimal therapy, we can preserve our big gun antimicrobials for when we really need the big gun. And then of course, um, you know, reduce healthcare costs, and then thinking about Daniel's interest in the microbiome, try to not do too much damage on the microbiome, uh, hammering it with all the broad spectrum antimicrobials. And on Carrie Ann's point, I also want to bring up uh, the bench tech point of view and how it can be feasible in a lab. Um, it's super important for any test that's being brought into the lab to be easily integrated. And one plus for disk diffusion, as Carrie Ann mentioned, is that it's fairly inexpensive and it's something that any lab can adopt. It doesn't require any extra equipment. And as we stated before, a lot of labs are going to 24-hour shifts, even for micro. So it allows reading on multiple shifts. And um, so from a bench tech standpoint, it can be easily brought in pretty much anywhere. Okay, yes. You know, and, and definitely one of the things in, in micro from also my, my experience as a, 
while working on the bench, you know, it's so different from other areas of the lab. So definitely micro, it's all about time. If you don't sub out the organism, if you don't, you know, you have to isolate it, you know, it costs you a day and then you set it up and that's another day. And so it's like, we kind of have to like, you know, stay one step ahead and start thinking, maybe I should throw this media in in case I get this organism. That way I can save myself a day or Maybe the patient has a history of being an MDRO. So let me go ahead and throw this, the reflex just in case that way I don't waste a day. So definitely micro it's, it's all about time. Yes, exactly. Okay. So uh, on the study, what types of uh, microorganisms did you evaluate and what was the method? Yeah, sure. So uh, we evaluated a wide range of things um, in terms of resistance profiles, such as both MRSA and MSSA, BRE, as well as VSE. Uh, and then we did, you know, common organisms that you'll see around a clinical lab. Uh, so we, as I mentioned, uh, MRSA, MSSA, but E. coli, Klebsia. Um, and we not only looked at these common microorganisms um, that are in the clinical lab, but we looked at them with two shortened incubation periods. So subcultures grown for six hours or 10 hours compared to the standard 18 to 24 hours. Uh, and that allowed us to see what the concordance was in terms of the results from the distribution test, uh, as well as the classification of those results as uh, susceptible versus resistant. And I can talk about the method a little bit. Um, so we started by just stringing organisms to a blood auger and incubated them overnight. From those plates, we made a 0.5 McFarlane, and we took that McFarlane and plated 100 microliters to three separate blood auger plates. Each of those were incubated for either 6, 10, or 24 hours. Once they were done incubating, we set up AST according to CLS guidelines set in the M100, um, just in brief for those who maybe haven't set up a Kirby Bauer. We, it's a 0.5 McFarland that we streak along a growth onto a Mueller-Hinton auger and drop antibiotic discs. Uh, we incubated those and read those at time points that were appropriate for the bug-drug combination also set by the M100, which is between 16 or 24 hours for what we tested. So I just have a question as I was reading the study. And um, so why the 100 microliter suspension to, you know, to why was that used to inoculate the blood agar plates? So really the main reason we wanted to do the 100 microliters is just to standardize all of our experiments. Okay, definitely. Yeah, makes sense. I think it's a good question, right? Because in real life, things can have a variety of different inocula, but just to make sure we were standardizing to really evaluate it, we, we put that into the equation. Okay. Yes, I understand. Yeah, because I mean, you know, typically we do either from, you know, make the suspension from picking up the colonies, you know, for the audience, or I also use like the, there's like a, a prompt system where you like touch the colonies and put that on the sailing and then that you use to set up your uh, susceptibilities. Okay. Thank you. So in this study, what worked well and what were the challenges? Yeah, I'll take that one. Um, so, I mean, it was nice. What we saw is that uh, there were no growth failures, even though six hours is a fairly short incubation period for a subculture. Uh, we had adequate uh, colonies at that point in time to proceed with this diffusion testing. Uh, so that was encouraging. And then we went on and saw that accuracy once we performed this diffusion testing uh, from early versus normal uh, subculture times, accuracy is really good, uh, surprisingly good. And 
not only was it good for QC organisms, um, but when we really tried to kick the tires and use a broad uh, set of clinical isolates, we saw that across different bugs and drugs and the combination of those two, uh, that there was a good concordance between the standard method, the standard time, uh, and the shortened subculture time. And for our challenges, I think probably our biggest challenge was with supplies. Um, we did a lot of testing during the pandemic. And as anyone who works in a clinical lab knows, there's been a lot of delays and back orders on some of our standard culture media, discs, um, tubes, any supply. So having the correct media and antibiotic discs when we needed them and enough to set up all three time points was a challenge. Um, I think probably our only other challenge was timing. So Daniel and I, when we were doing these experiments, excuse me, really wanted to make sure that we set up everything for each organism from the same subculture. So we would need to be available to set up the disc diffusion at 6, 10, and 24 hours, as well as read all three of them at the correct time points. Um, Big props to Daniel, who took the brunt of the very early and very late shifts. Um, for that, I'm incredibly thankful. All right. Thank you, Daniel. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's definitely, you know, obviously with the with the pandemic, yeah, the supplies has been definitely very challenging uh, from everything from media. When they started making tests for COVID, you know, like some of these companies, they started scaling back on the other ones. So we had like huge huge backlogs of you know tests like you know like Niceria and chlamydia pcr then a lot of times you know you place your order and then you know this agar is back ordered and so is this one yes and talking about the study yes one of the, that's always one of the challenges when especially if you're setting up the organisms and then the next day you happen to be off and then you know you have to either coordinate with a co-worker and kind of hope that it gets done because if you miss it then it sets you back. Okay, so um, as I was reading this study, you know, just this question came to mind. Um, why does the disc diffusion method has more limited use in the United States? Yeah, I think this is a great question. And I think a lot of it really comes down to regional customs. So in the US, the custom has been more to use a, a commercial automated susceptibility testing system. Um, it's my opinion, the major reason for that is that we have prioritized the convenience of that and, and the workflow that goes with that. Um, Kirby Bauer is notorious for having you know, longer hands-on time. It's a more manual method. In addition, while a Kirby Bauer generates zone sizes, it does not generate minimum inhibitory concentration values. And um, some people put a lot of emphasis or value on getting an MIC number. Um, I'm one of the people in the camp that doesn't value that number as much because, uh, you know, in the clinical lab, we know that every MIC, the allowable variation is plus or minus one doubling dilution. So your one can be 0.5 or it can be two. And I think it's important we don't overinterpret that number. Um, so clearly I'm a fan of disc diffusion. I already told you it's the major method. We use it in our lab. Um, and people often ask me why, and, and they're often surprised given our other amount of technology that it's our method. Um, but just to share with you some of the things I think are really important about it. One is that it's very flexible. We can design what we want our panels to look like. We can pick which discs are on the panel and we have a lot of them. Um, so we can be responsive to our patient population and our formulary. 
In addition, when new antimicrobials are approved, the disc is usually the first test that comes to market. And so we're able to start testing as quickly as possible when we use the disc. And I think as the clinical laboratory, we really have an obligation to do susceptibility testing for new drugs when clinically appropriate, when they're available, because it costs a lot of money to bring a new drug to market. And if we can't provide susceptibility testing, it won't be used. And so that just really further stifles the innovation in that space. Um, so yeah, I think it's interesting. I think with things like um, Keystra and WASP and total lab automation and being able to couple automation with disk diffusion as we move forward, I, I think it's possible that we may see more labs in, even in the US moving towards that methodology. Um, so you mentioned that you use the the disk diffusion. I mean, is that does does it um is it manageable using that method with the with the volume that you have in your lab? I think it's easy for me to say because I'm not the one doing it on a day to day basis. Um, but it is managed by staffing to it. So we have a separate susceptibility bench, and it's usually staffed by two technologists who share the duties. Um, we have two instruments called the Biomic that help with reading and interpretation of zone sizes. Not everything can be read on the Biomic. Um, for example, enterococci that grow more faintly aren't well interpreted with the Biomic. And anything that needs to be on Mueller Hinton with blood can't be put on the Biomic, but that definitely helps with our, our workflow. Um, and even though, again, I think a lot of people think disk diffusion is unsophisticated, it actually takes a lot of talent to be good at setting it up routinely and to interpret it and knowing what disks need to be read, for example, with transmitted light versus reflected light and when you do and don't read the pinpoints. Um, so it, take, it takes a lot of training. So yes, I think it's manageable with the right staffing. Yes, it definitely, it definitely makes the difference. You know, like I work in a very large facility and when you have you know, the system is set up like that. Like if you have a high volume and you have maybe someone, you know, reading your positives or like a good division of, of labor, then it, it works really great, really well. And you were mentioning, I'm sorry. I just was going to ask, which AST system do you use routinely in your job? We use uh, uh, it's, it's the Vitec. It's the main main method. And then we use, well, we were using broth micro dilution. But that was more for like the the NDRO reflexes. So the Vitec is the main one. And you were talking about your, you know, the, I guess people liking the MIC values. And that's, you know, it brings to mind that a lot of time, you know, we do perform, let's say that we perform a test, you know, from a Kirby Bauer. And then as soon as we put it out, then we get a request, you know, please perform the test, you know, like e-test or so, you know, sometimes, you know, a lot of providers, they do like the MICs. So I think a lot of this at our shop has come with um, education, discussion around it. We have buy-in from the antimicrobial stewardship team. Um, so in general, it's not our custom. Our practice isn't based on it. However, for certain key antimicrobials where sometimes the MIC is a driver, we do have backup methods, gradient diffusion, broth microdilution that can be done in selective cases, just not in all circumstances. Okay. Um, so how do you anticipate your results? You know, how might they be incorporated into routine clinical use? And uh, yeah, let's start with that question. I'll ask the next one. Yeah, so I think it's a good question, right? Because in a busy clinical lab, like you know about, um, operators are not just standing by at six hours to streak plates. 
Um, so there is the, the sort of um, research setting where we can standardize everything, which Megan and Daniel described well, and then there's the real world. So in the real world, where I think this will have the most utility is on positive blood culture broths. Um, so for example, in our lab, positive blood culture broths, after the gram stain is made and aliquot is put into a tube and is put on the keistra system, um, it's plated, and the first images are taken at eight hours. With Keystra, the plates always being in the um, optimal incubation atmosphere and temperature, the colonies grow great. For most regular bacteria, you have very robust growth at eight hours. And so this is where I think um, one can really best incorporate the, the method that we described in our paper. Um, also, we know blood cultures typically only grow one organism. While up to 10% can be polymicrobial, they're usually monomicrobial. So it's really well positioned for this. You know, where I don't think we would use it is something like a urine, because we all know if you start to work up a urine culture at six hours, one, you're just going to overcall contamination, it's going to be mixed, and you're going to be doing a lot of rework. Um, I also think it could be helpful for things like CSF, although I didn't mention that out of the gates, because thankfully, very few CSFs are positive anymore. So that's a much less common specimen type. Okay, so yeah, that was definitely that was going to be my my next question, it was answered. So yes, probably sources where typically you have one organism will be more ideal. Um, definitely like like blood cultures, like you were mentioning. You know, it is always my experience and it's in blood cultures, when I'm reading them, it's either, there's no middle ground. It's either a good day where you have you know, clear cut staph aureus, E. coli, or a really bad day when there are polymicrobial and then you are trying to separate and maybe the instrument, you know, there was some, you know, some limitation where it produces an ID, but the organism is not growing. So definitely there's no middle ground there. Um, have any more studies been performed after this one? So that is a great question. Um, and the answer is no, not yet. But the, the dream study is to really look at what the real world implementation looks like. Um, so putting the method into the wild, really seeing what the turnaround time difference is, step one, um, asking the question how often they have to be repeated or discarded because of, for example, mixtures. And then the even more important question, what is the clinical impact? You know, was prescribing practice changed um, or were antimicrobials altered based on the more rapid results? So I am I'm cautiously optimistic that those studies and that data will be forthcoming. Okay, yeah, and from and the outcome of the study, the numbers were actually pretty, pretty good from what I, I saw. So, and then, yes, definitely. And then if this, yeah, then like the labs, they, have, they will have to implement some sort of system, like maybe perhaps, because if, if they don't have an automated line um, where, you know, there's limited access to the plates, then they will have to, you know, devise some sort of system where, because, you know, like one of the challenges when you don't have a, an automated line like the Keystra is that the frequent activity, you know, people are opening the incubator all day, all day, sometimes, you know, techs, arrive at 6 a.m. and take out all their plates and they sit on the bench for hours. So that's one of the the challenges that they will have to work on. I mean, I, I will think as if they, you know, they implement this system. Absolutely. I mean, and maybe even having a separate smaller incubator that's used just for blood cultures. And there's even a sign on it that says only open the door at certain times or um, yeah, I think there's a lot to work through. Definitely, this workflow is much more amenable to a TLA system, that continuous flow, the incubator door being shut. Okay. Is there anything else that you would like to tell the audience about this study? 
Daniel, anything, any closing remarks? No, it was a real fun study to do. Um, and we were really excited that uh, it worked as well as it did with no very major errors or major errors uh, when comparing, you know, the uh, standard method, 18 to 24 hours with a shortened method of six hours with clinical isolates. So, um, yeah, I think that it's something that will make sense for labs that commonly do distribution testing uh, to consider implementing. Megan, any closing thoughts from you? I mean, I'd really just echo what Daniel said. Um, I thought it was kind of an exciting study and um, it's great that you're having us on your show. It just shows interest and we hope that some people might take this and try and utilize it in their own labs. It was a lot of fun and I'm surprised at how well it worked. I thought we would have more growth failures. So it was, it was a surprise in a pleasant way. Um, you know, now that you mentioned that about me bringing you on to the podcast, you know, like I was actually on, on, on Twitter, I see that like this study, you know, like a lot of people are commenting like very positively. So I was, you know, as I was seeing the comments, you know, I was so excited. I was like, oh, they're coming to my podcast to talk to me. So it's just, you know, it felt great. So it's, it's, it has a lot of positive reviews so far from what I've seen on Twitter and social media. It's been our pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Well, um, all three of you, definitely, you know, it's been a pleasure meeting you and talking to you about this. Um, you know, thank you for taking the time to come into Let's Talk Micro and talk about it. Thank you for having us. This was really fun. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. And that, my dear audience, it's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to this interview. As always, I always enjoy talking to you about this, all this microbiology stuff, all this interesting studies, all this information. As always, I hope you have a great week. Continue bringing that passion to what you do. So important. So please stay motivated. Stay safe. And of course, continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.